Live from Santa Monica, California, it is the show that survived 4th of July. <laughs> and also, Allison Mack, Smallville actress turned recruiter for the Nexium cult, and Keith Ranieri, who is serving 120 years, has been released from prison a good year and change early. And also, are Gen Zers becoming more and more estranged to their families? A new article on Cosmopolitan Magazine discusses it, the beacon of journalism that it is. We'll get into it. I'm Collier Landry. This is Moving Past Trauma Live. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial. In when I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Mover Nation, happy post-4th of July Wednesday. I realize this is a uniquely American holiday, of course, but I cannot tell you how many people reached out to me wanting to interview me on 4th of July. Hey, can we talk to you on Tuesday, 4th of July? Well, it was really Wednesday for most of the world that was trying to talk to me, and I'm like, guys, we have a holiday, and we no longer share a queen. And In fact, we haven't for 247 years or something like that. Um, but no, in all seriousness, it was just kind of a strange sort of thing. I was like, wow, everybody wants to talk to me on 4th of July. And it occurred to me because I thought, you know, doesn't most of the world watch American television and American trash television? Because there's a lot of partying that goes on on American trash television. So I'm sure that people have to be aware that we celebrate 4th of July here. There's drunken shenanigans, there's beer pong, family barbecues, hot dogs, just, you know, all kinds of shenanigans and debauchery. It's a very awkward thing. I don't know, for those of you that celebrated the holiday that are here, I'm curious, was it not super awkward for you guys that the holiday was literally smack dab in like the second day of the week? I don't really understand why, you know, and I don't have obviously a regular job where I go to a location i work for a company so some of my guests that had come over we did a little barbecue outside it was very cool and fun i was like have you guys been off were you guys off yesterday and they're like no we've been off since last thursday <laughs> very odd to have a holiday sort of land in like day after monday so you come you come to work and then you go home on the next day or i did post some fireworks on a youtube live over the past weekend and as i'm walking to a party that was literally three blocks away from me i noticed that everyone was walking in the opposite direction and i get to the party and I was probably, you know, they were doing the barbecue and it was probably like eight o'clock and they were all about ready to leave. I said, what are you, where are you guys going? They're like, oh, we're going to go to fireworks. And I was like, oh, there's fireworks here. Oh, that's what they're doing. Okay. That, that makes sense. People camped out on lawns. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun, but I, I just sat there and literally recorded them from the deck of my place, which was really, really groovy. And Marisol, who is downstairs right now, but she sat and watched the fireworks with me and she was a little scared but a lot of dogs have issues with fireworks so uh, a bit of news today trending news if you watch the hbo series the vow which is about the nexium cult which um is spelled in sort of a weird way it was run by a gentleman named keith ranieri who is serving 120 years in federal prison for you know, coercion and, and racketeering. And it, it was a cult. It was a cult. The show, it ran for two seasons now. Mark Vicente, who was a director, uh, most famous for directing a film called What the Bleep Do We Know, actually got caught up in it with his now wife, 
uh, and some other people, they actually came to my house a long, long, this is like mid 2000s. And uh, I was living in Hollywood with my girlfriend at the time. And they, these friends that were, oh, it was, you know, but they don't say join a cult. They're like, oh, it's this new way of thinking. And there's this guy. And because the ringleader here in Hollywood was a woman named Allison Mack, who was a an actress on the television show Smallville. And I don't even know if anyone knew who she was. I really think that her claim to fame became being this um, recruiter for Keith Raniere for the women that were involved in the group uh, and the HBO uh, documentary series is called The Vow. So she was just released from federal custody today and uh, per the New York Times, and she was supposed to serve three years. Um, she actually made a plea bargain in, um, I believe, 2019. She pleaded guilty to racketeering and conspiracy charges in 2019. And she was facing 17 years in prison. She received a shorter sentence after helping prosecutors who were pursuing a case against her, Mr. Ranieri by handing over evidence. And this evidence included he was branding women to use them as his uh, slaves. He, With his initials, he would brand them. It's a very, if you guys haven't seen this docuseries, you should check it out. It's very well done, but it's very terrifying uh, because cults are real and cults are scary. Why they all come to Hollywood is beyond me. But this this woman, Allison Mack, is, is now out of federal custody. She was released from Dublin, California. She gets to get on with her life. Now, I don't know really what, <laughs> what, uh, what kind of life you can have uh, after that. You know, I am a very big fan of people who, you know, who are incarcerated and get rehabilitated and, uh, you know, hopefully can rejoin society. But I don't know what her story is. I don't know how she would even, I don't think you could ever work in Hollywood again if you wanted to be an actress and why you would jeopardize that to do something unless you were sucked in yourself. But coercive control is a very, is a very really scary and real thing. And you see it with all the, these cults and um, Tara Newell and I have been talking to several people on our program, uh, Survivor Squad. If you guys haven't checked it out, there's a new episode tomorrow featuring Dr. Romani. And if you guys are on YouTube, you know her channel. She talks about narcissism and narcissistic personality abuse. She has a podcast called Navigating Narcissism. She will be tomorrow's guest on the Survivor Squad podcast. Yeah, Allison Mack, in a letter, wrote, to those who have been harmed by my actions, I threw myself into the teachings of Keith Raniere and everything I, with everything I had. I believe wholeheartedly that his this membership was leading me to a better, more enlightened version of myself. But she wrote, this was the biggest mistake and regret of my life. She helped recruit them into society as slaves. So now she's back into normal society, and, and we'll see how that goes for her. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the program, speaking of bizarre relationships and navigating bizarre relationships, and a lot of you, you come to here, you, you hear my story, you know the relationship that I have with my father growing up. Uh, and still continue to have off and on. You guys ask me about how these relationships work. So there's an article in Cosmopolitan, and I think a lot of people, you, Gen Z is the TikTok generation, as they as they say. And Gen Z has been somewhat notorious for cutting off ties with their parents in a lot of ways. Um, so this article, which is entitled, Why So Many y Young People Are Cutting Off Their Parents, 
Cosmopolitan explores the extraordinary rise in family estrangement across the country and what's leading millennials and Gen Zers to their breaking points. It came out in June 22nd, and I am obviously dealing with complicated relationships, familial relationships. It, I, I was like, oh, <laughs> I think this will make an interesting thing to talk about on the podcast. So it talks about this, this girl, Jordan, who was raised in a Southern Baptist household in North Carolina. And this is, you know, a household, as they say, where she was expected to attend church multiple times a week, accept Jesus as the way to salvation, honor their mother and father, etc. There was the last point right there in what they say, the Ten Commandments. So when Jordan made the decision to stop talking to her father, the choice stood in defiance to the lessons of her upbringing. But it was also because of them. She was tired of being told that women should should submit to men a belief ordained by the religion in which she was raised. She was finished obeying. Family estrangement flies in the face of what most of us are taught as children, that family is forever and the bonds of blood cannot be replicated, especially in cultures that value the, the cohesiveness of the group over mere individuals. Wants and needs, family is not considered a choice as much as it is a fact. But for families across America right now, that fact is fraying. Now, when I started reading this article, my thoughts go to my sort of desire, my overwhelming desire to have closeness with my own family and how the fabric of my family was unwoven, if you will, by that thread was pulled, as they, as they say in this article, uh, by my father committing an act of violence that had massive ramifications on my entire family. And when I think of how the, how that, the sort of ripple effects of that violence parallel these plights that some of these other individuals have, right? As someone who in his family relationship was the one who tried to try to be the cohesiveness, the glue that tied the family together. I spent the overwhelming majority of my young life trying to relate to my relatives and into my father's side of the family, my mother's side of the family. And all of it was sort of for naught in a lot of ways because uh, they just rejected me. And I don't know if it was that they really rejected me on their terms or not. And particularly when it comes to this fact of religion, because I come from a Catholic family, you know, my, so my father's brother, well, his only brother, but his youngest brother, he was my godfather. And my mother's sister, her only sister was my godmother. And I remember thinking growing up from little kid on, and I was told this by my mother, if anything ever happened to her or my father, I would go live in their care, right? I don't, I don't know if in my young mind, I thought they were going to live together or what it was, but one of them would take, one of them would have my back. The family would have my back. The family would have, would be there for me, right? And particularly because this, the bonds of religion, right? So I'm, I'm Italian and Irish and German, but Catholicism is very, has very strong roots, obviously in Italian families but also in Irish families. So 
I thought for sure, okay, uh, I'll, I'll be all right when if the proverbial shit hits the fan. And that was not the case. So it's interesting to see in this article, this same um, parameters of religion were affecting this young woman. And I'm not here to debate religion at all. But this young woman, Jer Jordan, sort of trying to deal with the, should I, you know, I don't believe this, but this is estranging me from my father, et cetera, et cetera, right? I thought a lot about that. <laughs> And I remember I did, um, so as a good Catholic, and I was adopted and my adopted parents were Catholic. They were not like, let's go to church every, every single, we were holiday Catholics, if you will, um, go on the major holidays. We weren't really like, let's go to church every week, uh, at least maybe in the beginning, but I don't think it, it didn't last very long. I remember, so I, I did all the steps, the confirmation, you get confirmed in the church. It's a sort of right of passage. You do your if I believe it's you do your first Holy communion when you're younger. And then you, as you're in, you know, pre-adolescence, adolescence stage, your teenage years, you go into doing your, um, uh, your confirmation and you, you confirm all the beliefs in the church. I don't really remember a lot of it. I know I have the documents somewhere, but you do this whole thing. So you're baptized, you do the, the, the body of Christ thing later, and then the Holy communion, and then you do the, the confirmation when you're older. Right. And so, uh, those are the three steps, I believe. So I remember I, I was written letters by my uh, my aunt, who is my mother's sister, and I was written letters by my um, by my uh, uncle, uh, who was my father's brother. Uh, and they were all very much like, oh, yes, and we're so proud of you and your mother and this, that, and the other. And there was one thing that was stuck out in my mind, which was that my mother could light up a room. And that was actually the nicest thing that my aunt ever said to me, was how my mother's spirit would light up a room. And I always thought, and, and I had, and I, I did a video on this in a, in a podcast episode called TikTok Family Reunion. Cause last, like, I don't know, February ish, I got, I started getting on TikTok and I had a family member who was married to my dad's cousin reach out to me or find me on TikTok, reach out to me. She had seen the uh, documentary that I made in Murder in Mansfield, which is for sale below, just in case you're curious. Um, but, I had seen the film of murder in Mansfield. And then it also uh, had always wondered what had happened to me. And it sort of followed the case. And, and a lot of the members of the family uh, were just, everyone kind of thought, Oh, well, somebody took care of him and he was okay. So somebody from the family took him. And she was astonished to know that that was to find out that that was not the case. Mostly because of the strong vein of Catholicism in my family. And this is not a, um, uh, you know, again, this is not religious related, but because this young woman was raised in a religious family, I found her parallels and the uh, sort of dichotomy between her own beliefs and those beliefs of her parents to be sort of, um, or the alignment of those beliefs to be off for sure. <laughs> and, um, and I think a lot of people experience this. And I think when you are raised with religion, and people and and that religion is supposed to i think the fundamental you know teach you right from wrong this that and the other right uh give you something to believe in something to be spiritual about hope there's heaven there's hell don't be a bad person you'll go to hell be a good person you go to heaven type thing uh i'm, I'm oversimplifying of course but it also gives you a structure and i think that when that structure is either the facade of that structure begins to crumble 
in this case, this young woman, Jordan, um, seeing that, no, I'm, I'm not a submissive person to a man. I don't want to like, I don't want to live in that. I'm my own woman. I, I want to have my own career. I want to have this. It sounds like obviously they were maybe a, they had heavier beliefs than most. Um, but also when you find the facade of like, oh, well, you said you were supposed to be there to protect me. Well, you're my godfather. You're my godmother. And my mother said, my mommy and daddy said, if anything ever happened to us, you would take care of me. And then something happened to them and you didn't take care of me. <laughs> and the struggle for reconciliation with not only yourself, but also those individuals. And it was something that I was um, very, 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 I, I tried really hard to repair those bonds growing up. It never worked. And my adoptive parents did the same thing. They would invite my um my aunt and uncle, we would go try to visit them. If, and, you know, sometimes it would be like, okay, we've come to visit. You ever, you ever go to visit someone and you go to the town that they're at, like you, you drive all this way, you come to their town, they're, you know, what a, a day drive and you get there and then they're not available <laughs> or they can barely make time for you. It's like, you know, somebody flies out to see, you know, somebody flies out to the West coast and they're a friend of mine and they're like, Hey, are you available? I try to do everything I can to see them if they're my friend, let alone my family. You know, uh, if I'm busy, if I'm working, if I want to shoot, I'm, I'm doing something, it's a little more difficult, but if I can, if I can make time, I do it. It was like pulling teeth with these guys. Well, it was like pulling teeth, you know, Oh, well, if we have time or this, and they did see me and we did go to dinner, you know, but it wasn't anything. And I, and, I strove for this connection for a really long time. And obviously having a connection with my father was a little bit of a different story in the sense that he's incarcerated. So, and how was I able to have him and maintain a relationship with someone who was incarcerated, right? But couldn't have, could not have a relationship with people who are free. And by the way, to add insult to injury, the whole reason that my father is incarcerated, and I speak to this in my, my, my mother's side of the family, who two of my female cousins were molested by my father. Um, there were accusations of this. Um, my father, not a lot of people know this, but my father was going to be arrested uh, about a year or so before the before he took my mother's life. And in the film of murder in Manson, I don't know if I addressed it, but I do talk to Dave Massmore, who is the um, who is the detective from the case, who I bonded with, and and together we we solved the crime. Um, he uh, you know he had reached out to them, and they said, oh yeah, he's the Baltimore police because he had heard rumblings of this. So he um, he basically uh you know spoke to these investigators and they were like yeah we were going to charge him but one of the daughters could not the kids couldn't testify and look you're a child you've been traumatized something like that happens to you that is not um that is awful first of all uh un unbelievably sad and painful and um and I, I don't fault them at all for for not going through that i mean they're little girls are confused i mean it's i was confused trust me um, and this is something I didn't know until much later on in life, but you would think that I would get like some kudos for that. Right. When they'd be like, we really love you. Call your, thank you so much for doing what you did. 
you got justice. You did this, you know, pat on the back for you. <laughs> but it wasn't like that. It was, you know, one of the reasons why I went to foster care is they didn't want anything to do with me, right? One of the reasons why I never saw them, they didn't want anything to do with me. I, I have not seen my, and if, I don't even think she's alive anymore. My mother's sister, I have not seen since 1998. 1998 was the last time I saw her. So that was 25 years ago. Wow. Spring of 1998, I believe. Yeah. That was a long time ago. So I find it really sad. Um, and this is not about me, but this is about me sharing my story with you guys. But I find it sad that, that these, you know, and th those are with obviously with an aunt, right? This is with parents and you can't find this common, this common denominator, right? And people live on in and go through life without trying to mend those fences. And this is a, the, so I'm going to read a little more of this article to you guys, because this is just what strikes me. It's just very poignant because nowadays things are very connected. I mean, this is, like I said, 25 years ago since I had seen my aunt. So, you know, there's no real social media. She wasn't a big email person. And, and I straight up tried to connect like literally. And I was shut down by my cousins. Like she doesn't want to talk to you for whatever reason. Uh, I can't think of a good reason, uh, whether it's, I think there, I think from having talked to my cousin who doesn't speak to me anymore either, um, it was either, um, it, it, I think it was a, a sort of cauldron or brew of a, a stew of potentially, uh, this sort of guilt and shame of not having, uh, stepped up for me with my family or, it was this um, this sort of uh, uh, anger that they were holding on to, which I think is the biggest part of what my father did. I think a lot of people, and this is one of the reasons why I do this program or why I share my story is to, to articulate to y'all that... Um, that you gotta you gotta find a way through this because it's gonna destroy you. Because as we go through this this article and this I guess I believe this girl talks about this on her TikTok, her sort of estranged relationship. Um, and uh, you know they reference celebrity celebrities like Drew Barrymore who talks about her emancipation from her parents at the age of fourteen. Uh, Je Jeanette McCurdy, who wrote a best-selling book called "I'm Glad I'm Glad My Mom Died," and then Brooke Shields, who's obviously opened up recently about her tumultuous relationship with her mother. Um, for those of you that didn't see the that saw the documentary on or docking series on Brooke Shields, I think it's called "I Am Brooke Brooke Shields." Sorry, rather, uh, it, it's interesting. But this girl Jordan talks about this, and this is like a big, a big sort of thing in um. And on TikTok and with millennials and Gen Zers discussing the issues with their parents. Um, but when she was 32, she said she decided to leave the church in early adult, uh, uh, decided to leave the church in early, adult, early adulthood. But tension rose between her and her father because her parents were married. Jordan says she held back from cutting her dad off despite the fights they had about religion, politics, 
and her exit from the church. But after one last explosive phone call, Jordan hung up the phone and had a quote moment of clarity. She realized she was finished, done. Looking back, she says she's lucky she waited. She said, uh, she says he's lucky she waited that long. While he called and texted her repeatedly, Jordan didn't budge. It's an extreme privilege to have a great relationship with your adult children, she says. I was always hoping, while we weren't talking, that he would take my silence as a cue to get himself together and to apologize to me. And it says, threaded into so many of these stories is the hope that maybe the act of estrangement will bring the estranged closer. So they cut off, cut off ties from these people, hoping, I never want to speak to you again. You know, I think we all have gone through this with relationships. Like, I'm done with you. Get out the phone. I'm done with you. This jerk, I'm done with him. <laughs> and throw it down, throw down the phone. And of course, you know, midnight rolls around, text message. Oh, hi, how are you? You know, holidays come around. Oh, I missed that person. Um, <laughs> so we all know how that, that sort of, I'm going to cut you off, but I really don't want to cut you off feeling, uh, that whole cut you off, but not cut you off act works is in the case of Jordan. Uh, the year after their estrangement, Jordan's dad was hospitalized. She took a red eye flight to be by her mother's side and said her goodbyes to her incoherent father who died after she got there. Now she finds herself grieving a complicated relationship. She thinks she did the right thing, but part of her grief is accepting that she'll never know if given more time, he could have ever changed. It says threaded into so many of these stories is the same hope that uh, hope Jordan had that maybe the nuclear act of estrangement would eventually bring the estranged closer, like cutting hair to try to make it grow longer. That's how it was for Rose 21, who says she used to be a quote, daddy's princess before her father's heroin addiction escalated to the point that Rose felt forced to make a choice. I hoped that he would say, oh, my daughter's no longer talking to me. I should try to fix that so I can talk to her, uh, talk to her or see her again. Rose said, but sadly, he hasn't chosen that. There are so many of these things about her present. There are so many things about her present life that she wishes she could tell her father that she graduated from high school and dyed her hair, that she got a job working with disabled children and brought a boyfriend home to meet the family. It all happens without her father and still Rose hopes. Um, Quincy Gideon, Psy D, psychologist in Los Angeles, specializes in trauma therapy, explains that children's reactions to familial estrangement are mixed and can change over a lifetime. Some people have a lot of hope that their family can change, she says. But by the time folks get to the estrangement, they've spent years trying to set appropriate boundaries, live with disappointment, accept their family flaws and their family's flaws, and negotiate in so many different ways that estrangement is a relief. Such a significant step is best undertaken with the support of a therapist, recommends Gideon. In her own practice, she has clients who take small breaks from contact with a family member to gauge the emotional impact. Was it worth it? Was it relaxing? Was it stressful in some way that we didn't anticipate? Then we go from there. So, um, interesting words from... Uh, Quincy Gideon, Psy D. Um, yeah, a little bit of that. Taking taking time, taking uh, a moment. Establishing boundaries is always a really good thing. 
But I, the thing that I come back to in all of this, by the way, thank you, Cash, Kathleen Welsh, for supporting the program. I appreciate that so much. The, the thing that I think is most interesting here is this statement that Jordan, getting back to Jordan, because she's the one that starts the article, uh, she says she finds herself grieving a complicated relationship. A lot of you have asked, how did I navigate? And I know I, I sort of diverted from my stories of my aunt and uncle, um, but I'll get to my father because that would be the more complicated of the relationships to say the least. She finds herself grieving with um, the complicated relationship. Like she's, she's grieving that relationship now that he's passed. So for me, in my personal journey, with dealing with my father. And this is why I wanted to read this article because I wanted to, I realized that I, um, I grieved that relationship with my father very early on. And ultimately when you watch my film of murder in Mansfield, you see the final, like you see the final, like the, the cherry on top of the grief of that relationship, which is me coming to terms with the fact that, okay, um, I'm never going to get through this man, but also I am not this man, which was a, a really big relief, like a really big relief for me. Uh, because I think that when you go through a cycle with a toxic parent, and it's interesting that they brought in somebody, uh, you know, this girl and not to sort of diminish or anything, but this girl, um, Jordan, who had this estranged relationship with her father because it was over politics and religion and beliefs. Versus this other girl, oh, Holly, Holly comes up and says, this is Rose, whose father was a heroin addict. That is a cycle of like, you know, I think a lot of people here or that watch this program, maybe you guys find uh, you might have very complex relationships with your parents. Some people are suffering from uh, parents who were abusers of substances like alcohol or drugs. Uh, some, you know, suffered abuse at the hands of their parental figures. And all of that is very, very horrible. And then some just have a disagreement. Like, I don't get along with my father, so I don't talk to him. I think that what you want to do is if you don't want to be grieving the relationship after they're gone. That's my opinion. That was my opinion. And that was my, my process with my father was, I'm going to grieve this relationship that I know no longer exists, or I'm going to grieve what I thought this relationship could ever be. And this was a very long process as it wasn't like overnight, but this was a situation that as I got older, like into my twenties, I started realizing like, okay. And people would ask me like, what was the, con what are the conversations like with your father? And I said, they're very surface. And I, and I got to, my father was transferred to Lucasville state prison, which is in um like Southern mid Southern Ohio. Like on, I think like on the way to Cincinnati, I, I went to school uh, for the first years of my of my college experience at um, collegiate experience at the Ohio University School of Music, which is in Athens, Ohio, on the Ohio University campus. And Lucasville was probably forty five minutes to an hour away from my campus, so it was easy for me to go see my father twice a month. Which that's when I really started trying to build that relationship to sort of figure out how I would navigate that. So I could jet on over to the prison, which by the way, Lucasville prison was the one that was taken over by the inmates, uh, the Muslims and the Aryans partnered, teamed up together and went and uh, took over the prison. And it was very scary. There's documentaries about it. Very, very terrifying for all involved. 
And it was like 11 or 12 days. Um, President Bill Clinton sent in the National Guard. It was a whole thing. It was a whole kerfuffle. Um, but, you know, so going to Lucasville right after those riots was pretty terrifying. Um, but I remember that I would, I would have these conversations with my father. And it was always this, like, we would talk about girls, you know, obviously because my dad, right? So we would talk about girls. We would talk about basketball. talk a lot about basketball. I'm a very big basketball fan. Talk a lot about sports the college experience because he had gone to college, obviously. Uh, we talk about that collegiate, like when I'm studying, studying subjects, but it was never, there was never any conversation of, you know, why did you kill my mother? Why this, why that? There was never any of that conversation because I, I, I started to begin to see very early on in sitting down with him that I was never probably in those moments really going to get that answer or really going to engage in that. And I didn't want to let the relationship, uh, I didn't want to go in there with both barrels blazing and, and just put his feet to the fire. Like I do in my film, uh, at that time, because I wanted to see like, okay, can there, can some sort of substance of a relationship be salvaged here? And I know this is very odd for a lot of you to hear that, you know, that someone whose father, who's murdered his mother, um, you know, Jen tried to salvage a relationship with him, but I did because I had to do it for myself. And I remember this is very hooey dooey, but my mother came to me in a dream when I was in college and said, you should reach out to your father. He's all you have left. So I did. Um, and I, uh, I did my best to make that relationship work. And, but I was, I was really in that process in those moments of like slowly grieving my father, slowly grieving the loss of a relationship. Like, look, he had missed out on all my teenage years. There was all of that. Um, you know, now we're, I'm in college. He's missing out on that, but he's sort of, I mean, he's, he's mostly missing out on that, obviously. Um, and there's all these things where, and I'm also very much processing, like I have a younger sister who is, you know, at that time she was eight years old, maybe seven, six years old uh, when I was in college. So she was still a baby. And, um, you know, what, like what that relationship looks like, what that ends up being laying the foundation of like, okay, I am preparing myself for the fact that this is what this relationship will always be. You know, um, he's going to be prevaricative. He's going to, uh, it's going to just have to be on these simpler terms. It's not going to be very deep. And I navigated that for over a decade. You know, well, so, uh, so, so yeah, like 15 years at least until I get into the room with him when I finally confront him, right? But I realized like looking back and I, and I was, and I was aware of it when I was doing it, but I sort of kind of became unaware of it, that I was grieving a relationship that could no longer could didn't exist. And it was very easy. I think in a lot of ways, because with these young ladies that are in this, in this particular girl, Jordan, in this article, there's a lot of, you know, her discussing because those parents are in her life, right? She can go catch a plane and go, well, she can't go see her father anymore because he passed away, but she could go back and she could see those parents and she could be in the room with them and could have that relationship. 
but they just want to get along. Everybody be like, ah, and then, you know, fights and then anger. And then, oh, I'm never talking to you again. Whereas I never had that ability. Like I can go into a place and like my, my father can never interact with my life. I can only interact with his, if that makes sense. Like he's incarcerated, I'm not. So I have to come to him to have that interaction. I have to allow him in or bring myself to him to have that interaction, whatever that looks like. And I guess in a, in a way that they have to do that too, but it's a little more like, you know, dad can jump on an airplane and go see his daughter anytime he wants. And there's a lot of responsibility that falls on, obviously the parent too, for not wanting to see their son, uh, their son or daughter, right? Or you know, child. Um, but it is, it is something to, to think about, like where you're at in your life. Are you prepared? Have you grieved that relationship? If that relationship was a toxic relationship for you, have you grieved it? Have you been able to, um, to really come to terms with the fact that that relationship might end in the blink of an eye. Did you do everything you could to try to repair it? Did you do everything that you could in your power to release yourself from it? You know, I know when my father passes, I will, I'm sure I will be very sad, you know, but I have tried everything I can to repair that relationship or to make the best out of it that I could. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's complicated, but I think a lot of this has to do with that. We only have a finite time on this earth and maybe, maybe these are cautionary tales. Reading these stories in Cosmopolitan magazine, hearing people on TikTok, Hey, hearing somebody on YouTube sharing his experience. I think a lot of times we need to maybe look at these as cautionary tales in our own lives. What are we going to do now to make sure that we're good when we lose that individual or when we potentially mourn that relationship? And do we grieve it beforehand rather than after the fact? Mari's soul is barking. I think my neighbor's got some more packages today. Yeah, they always say you got to keep your side of the street clean, right? It gives a lot to think about. And what can you do today? I think that's where I challenge you guys, my audience, to sort of say, like, what can I do in these relationships? And if you are someone who is on the, the other side of this, right? You're not the child, you're the parent. And you're going through these issues. What can I, what can you do? to sort of maybe mend those fences, repair those boundaries. I mean, being rigid is, you know, not a lot of fun, you know? And I'm not saying like, and look, the young lady who rose, who has cut off her father, who's a drug addict, like, absolutely. Like you can't, you can't go down in a quagmire with people who have massive issues with substance abuse and can't get their act together. You can't sink down the road and it's heartbreaking to watch. And I am very fortunate that I don't have that experience in my life. Um, my, my experience is quite different, obviously. But, um, you know, I have friends that do struggle with, with parents who have, who are just have a real problem with drugs and alcohol. And it's, it's really sad.
it's a really sad thing because there's nothing you can do to help them. No cutting them off will ever do as much. And it then becomes all about you. And I think that with when I when I talk about the the processing of the relationship and the grieving of the relationship, that's when you sort of take back that because in that grieving of the relationship with my father came forgiveness, right? And you know, I know I and many people would say to me, Why do you forgive your father? Why did you forgive him? He did something so horrific to you and so horrific to your mother and so horrific to your family. How can you forgive somebody like that? And my simple answer was, it's not about him. It's about me. <laughs> it's about me knowing in my heart that I can move on from what, uh, what has occurred and do my best to reprocess that relationship, do my best to, to be the best person in that relationship I can be. I know somebody's here in this. I don't know if they're listening to it now or listening to it two days from now, two weeks from now, two years from now. I don't know. You got to do you. You got to look after yourself, but you have to be aware of, of this very, like, I'm going to just cut it off and not ever speak to them again. Like That doesn't do any good either. Unless you are 100% process and grieve that relationship, but you got to do it while they're around. It's much harder to do that when you're, when they're gone. You don't have those opportunities to say the things that you really wanted to say. That's sort of my reaction to that. I mean, our time is very finite, you know. There was somebody who I just saw uh, passed away. They're 48 years old today. <laughs> That's young. That's still young. Um, you know, so I think that uh, there's a lot to consider. Heavy subject matter today. Heavy subject matter today, guys. But this is... Um, sort of my Wednesday wrap and sort of uh, morphed into Thursday, Thursday, thoughtful Thursdays, Thursday thoughts. Yeah. I'm going to leave you guys kind of on a, on a solemn note, you know, uh, I'll, I guess I'll put a link to this article in cosmopolitan. Should you guys want to read it? I want to say a big thank you to, again, all my channel members, all my channel subscribers, those of you that bought super stickers, those of you that subscribe to me on Patreon and those of you support me by buying me a coffee or contributing via PayPal or what have you. Or if you just simply subscribe to the channel and share the show and you're helping me build, you're all a part of Mover Nation. I thank you all. I love you all so much. Thank you for allowing me to be on this platform to share my life and my experience with you guys. Uh, it is truly an honor and um, a privilege and I look forward to it every day. So um, on that note, I'm Collier Landry and this is Moving Past Trauma. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash collierlandry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright, Collier Landry.